0: Welcome to the Association of Entrepreneurship and Regional Development podcast. Each publication in our journal is a great opportunity to share significant and audacious contributions to a large audience. My guest today is Theodor Vladasell from the Universitat Pompeu Utfabra from Barcelona and the Swedish Institute for Social Research from Stockholm University. He recently published an article entitled Family Structure and Entrepreneurship's evidence from Swedish siblings. It has been published recently in Entrepreneurship and Regional Development, a journal edited by Taylor & Francis. Theodore, welcome to our podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to talk to you today, Vincent.
0: Can you tell us what is the origin of your paper? Why have you decided to address this particular topic? And what is the question you aim to answer?
1: Yeah, that's, uh, that's probably the best starting point what can have. And this really goes back to about 10 years ago where I found out what entrepreneurship is. I had one of these classes in my master's and I thought, oh, 12 easy steps to be an entrepreneur. An entrepreneur. You know, how, how pointless. I'm not interested in this. And then I discovered this was about research. And, and I understood that we still don't have a good answer for the, for the question, where do entrepreneurs come from? So that's something that I've been thinking about for the past basically basically 10 years. And this line of research allowed me to combine my interest in entrepreneurship with my interest in broader societal patterns. So something like inequality or, or equality of opportunity and thinking you know, maybe a lot of people could be entrepreneurs but they don't have access to entrepreneurship. So the idea was to marry these two strands of research and to really understand the interplay of, of inequality and entrepreneurship and access to resources. And the lens that I found most useful for understanding this was the role of families. Right. It's the essential building block of society. And it's really the luck of the draw. You could be you could be born into a good family. You could be born into a bad family. You could be lucky. You could be unlucky. And that could really determine your lifetime uh, outcomes, whether that's, you know, your income, your education. But also and more importantly for me, your level of entrepreneurship. So that's something that I've been uh, pursuing for a long time. And I have a, another paper. It also used to be my job market paper about five years ago, Um where I try to quantify how important families are for entrepreneurship overall, and and in doing that, I compute measures of sibling similarity. And what we discovered in that paper with my co-authors was that, you know, family can explain about fifty percent of the variation in who becomes an entrepreneur and how successful they are as, as entrepreneurs. And for me, that was that was really a big number. That was really a surprising number, and it made me want to understand more about how families influence entrepreneurship. And and this explanatory power really made me think, okay, but we're only capturing the stuff that makes siblings similar, right? That's the core idea of that measure. The more similar children are, the more important their shared environment. So I thought, why don't we flip the question and think, what happens if we look at how families make kids different, right? And of course, parents will always say they treat all their children the same, but implicitly there are some dynamics inside the family that could create differences. Whether we're talking about birth order right you spend more time with your first kid whether you like it or not that's just how things happen and then your second one gets slightly less time slightly less attention so you create these weird dynamics and you can continue that with the third kid and the fourth and so on so I thought that would be something that would be interesting to to understand and also to put that in in relation to how big the family is and what kind of resources the family has and also trying to understand the gender dimension right is this process different for for men than it is for women, and how does it affect entrepreneurship? So I really wanted to study the idea of sibling differences, and something that really surprised me was how unclear the literature was. I thought, I'm probably not the first person to think about this. Other people, clever people than me have probably attacked this problem, they have an answer. And you know, people have been studying entrepreneurship for more than 200 years, okay, perhaps more formally for 30, 40 years, but we don't have good answers to these questions. There have been some studies, but they always produce results that to me were a little bit surprising. So let me give you an example. The classic thing that you read about it in the news every now and then, oh, being the later born child makes you disruptive and risk-taking, so you're a good entrepreneur. And I thought, OK, I understand that part. But there's also a lot of research in sociology and economics and um, cognitive science and so on that actually finds later born children tend to have lower abilities. So I thought that's a little bit of a puzzle. How can these people be such successful entrepreneurs? Okay, fine. I understand they might be more risk-taking. That's possibly why they do it. But if they don't really have the ability to back it up, can we really believe that result? And is this something that we want to encourage? Right? That's why I mentioned all the press articles. They often talk about, no, no, we want to, you know, somehow push these children who are very risk-taking to become entrepreneurs. Like, yeah, but I'm not sure that's a great idea. So really, that's, that's what I wanted to understand, trying to look at these sibling differences and cut through some of these empirical puzzles and, and you know, perhaps unclear results coming out of the way.
0: What are the main contribution of your paper?
1: So that's actually something that I, that I struggle with and something that the review really helped with um, in, in really trying to, to place myself in, in that literature. But I think looking back on it now, perhaps what's really the biggest, um, the biggest contribution is really to understand families and how they affect entrepreneurship in more detail. And I think that's, that's important both on, both on a theoretical level and on a practical level. On a theoretical level, one thing that I really try to do in this paper, beyond finding a, a framework around family systems and family socialization and how families allocate resources, and, and then linking that to the idea that not all entrepreneurs are equal, or not all entrepreneurship types are equal. So the idea that there is a lot of heterogeneity in entrepreneurship um, that we need to take seriously and and putting these two things together was something that I was really interested in. Um, and and to be fair, it's also something that I've done in in quite a lot of my papers, and i'm I'm getting better at it. But this idea that the types of entrepreneurship matter seems to be really important. Now, of course, there's a lot of discussion about necessity entrepreneurs and opportunity entrepreneurs. It's really hard to pin that down, you know? there's always a bunch of different motives, right, for becoming an entrepreneur. It's not always clear what's the dominant motivation, what's the dominant pursuit. All entrepreneurs will claim they had some kind of opportunity and to a certain extent opportunities in the eye of the beholder. So it's really hard to say, but it's a useful way of thinking about the world. Some people become entrepreneurs because that's what's right for them. That's the best thing that they could do and that's how they pursue innovative ideas. But there's also people who become entrepreneurs because finding a job through the regular labor market is difficult. So I thought, okay, how can we how can we translate that into into a a data context that I can actually implement these kinds of definitions? And the one thing that um, the literature in entrepreneurship has recently done is to look at the legal status of the firm. They well, okay, you've started a new company today, Vincent, but what kind of company did you start? Did you register it? And this is really the core question. Did you register it as a, you know, as an incorporated firm? Did you incorporate your company? Do you have limited liability? That's the kind of, that's the kind of thing that would set entrepreneurs that are more ambitious perhaps from, from, from the ones that really don't. And and what's really important here is that not only is the cost of opening such a firm a little bit bigger, so you really have to put your money where your mouth is. These are not exorbitant amounts, but they're still relatively big. So I think in Sweden. Throughout like the 2000s, for instance, it was close to 13,000, 14,000 euros to, to open one of these firms, whereas the cost to, to open an unincorporated firm were much, much lower. And the other thing is that limited liability really helps us. Um, it really helps entrepreneurs because not only do you have that liability, you can protect your own assets in case something happens to the firm, but it also allows you to, to raise more finance from other people who are now, you know, the risk for them is much smaller now. And in that way, you can pursue bigger gambles, right? You can take bigger risks, but you also have a chance to get that big reward. And I think that's really what one way of implementing this in practice to separate entrepreneurs who do it because they kind of have to and entrepreneurs who do it because they really have an idea that they want to translate into a product and bring to market and and be really successful. So entrepreneurship heterogeneity is very important to me. Um, And again, marrying this literature on on family socialization resource allocation with entrepreneurial heterogeneity is something that's I think really novel for the literature and it really helps me create better predictions and, and that I can then take to take to the data The other thing that I think really um, uh, is a contribution of the paper is to clear up some of those empirical puzzles that I that I talked about It's like well we don't really know what's driving birth order and, and this paper actually provides uh, an explanation that's, well, at least to my mind, is 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 novel to the literature and is something that other people have, have begun using in the meantime, which is to say, well, what if the relationship between birth order and entrepreneurship is not about risk-taking, or better said, is not only about risk-taking? What, is, what if this particular relationship is because these people don't have the formal education that would help them be successful on the labor market? So then they have to turn to this. And actually, what I find in the paper is that The relationship between birth order and entrepreneurship that so many people doubt is not about those growth-oriented entrepreneurs. It's really about these unincorporated firms, usually small-scale operations, not a lot of budget, not a lot of revenue, right? So clearly, and, and then, of course, bringing in education to all of this actually helps explain the majority of it. So we have essentially what is a new explanation for an empirical regularity coming from the fact that I explore a, a new channel, which is education, formal education, but also coming from from the idea that not all types of entrepreneurship are the same. So I see that as really one of the biggest contributions.
0: What was for you the main theoretical and maybe methodological challenge or challenges in addressing such a question?
1: Yeah, that, I can tell you there were many, but I'm just going to focus on on a couple of them. So I think the, the first one, and probably the most difficult, um, and again, this is where I think the review process was was really instrumental. Was finding a theory what, that would encompass all of the elements that I cared about, because I needed uh, uh, let's say this broad way of seeing the world that could help me understand birth order effects and then family size, but also understanding how family size effects change with birth order, it right? changes with gender, and also sibling sex composition or the or the gender composition of of the children inside of the family and the kind of relationships they have. And that's where, you know, the, one, of, one of the reviewers was really helpful in guiding me towards this family socialization literature. And, and I realized, yeah, that's really the, the way to look at things. And of course, the dynamics of sibling interaction and the kind of, let's say, niches inside of the family that they try to find for themselves really seem to really seem to matter. Of course, there's some other things that uh, go into that theory. And, and here I, I, I leave a bit of room for future research, which is to perhaps understand a little bit better you know, the causal mechanisms that go into the link between families and entrepreneurship, because my theory tends to be a little bit higher level. It's also because I think families are incredibly complex. So you have to simplify a little bit, but also because empirically, it's really hard to pin down. So I thought, let me just stick to the kind of things that I can measure. Let me just stick to the kind of things that I can uh, that I can really pin down. But one of the things that seems to be important here is whether children can develop self-efficacy. Uh, And that seems to be relatively more difficult for later born children. Actually, there's a lot of research in cognitive science that they don't see themselves as sufficiently able relative to their their older siblings, which I thought was a fascinating finding. Um, And it also seems to be the the case that this explains why family size affects entrepreneurship in a negative way. Right. Because my thought was and, and, you know, family size is going to mean that whatever resources you have, the more kids you have, the less you're going to be able to give to each of them. I didn't necessarily find that in the data. So family finances don't seem to matter, but so clearly there's a need for an alternative explanation. And my hypothesis here is that it's really through self-efficacy, right? You don't have resources, but it's not really about the money. It's more about the time. It's about the attention. It's about the parenting. Um, and then these children perhaps don't have the amount of encouragement that they need to develop that self-efficacy. So I really leave that for, uh, for other people to, to, to build on in the future. The other thing that was really difficult was to say, well, We know that we're interested in birth order and family size and and sibling sex composition. But how do you even, you know, how do you go to the data and measure these things? That's one thing. And once you've measured them, how do you make sure that you're capturing causal relationships that are not confounded by anything else? And actually, this has been a bone of contention for many years in in the literature. How do you split birth order and family size? Because you can only have a fifth-born child in a family that has at least five children. So this is really thorny empirically, and, and you have to find find your way around it. And the way that I did it was to have slightly different cuts of the data that would allow me to, to do a set of exercises that would produce estimates that I can confidently, or at least to a certain extent, attribute a causal interpretation to. That means, you know, I, can, I should only compare children within the same family because that fixes my family size, and then I can really look what happens inside that family if I'm studying birth order. It means that I have to find something that changes family size without changing anything else about the family, because you'd imagine, well, who has more kids, maybe less educated people, or maybe more educated people who can afford it, or maybe poorer families, maybe richer families, all of these things would affect, right, how, how we think about the link between family size and entrepreneurship, they would become founders. So my solution here, and this was borrowing from a long literature, mainly in economics, was to say, well, what if the family expected to have one kid, but actually got twins? Right. So that bumps up family size by a little bit without really affecting other things about, you know, the level of income of the family or the level of education. So that brings me, you know, gives me some empirical traction to get causal effects. And of course, for for sibling sex composition, you think, well, back, you know, back in the 50s and 60s. And actually the people that I study from Sweden tend to be born in the 60s because then I can cover their whole careers. You know, back then it was difficult to choose the sex of the child. These days, it's it's possibly more uh, more possible, you have all kinds of pills and tests that you can do to do that, and some countries are possibly doing that. Um, but at least for the period that I'm looking at, that doesn't really seem to happen. So conditional on you deciding to have a second child, what gender that child is, is basically random. So you can use that in, in an exercise that gives you some some kind of causal interpretation. And I think going to, to the data and coming up with exercises for each of these analyses, but also many many robustness checks to make sure that nothing is going wrong and that everything is, you know, correctly teased out and the interpretation makes sense. Um, that, that did take a lot of effort.
0: During your research journey, what was your biggest surprise or maybe the most counterintuitive result?
1: There were some of them. Yeah, there, there were actually quite a lot of them. So the first one I already mentioned, which is what I thought, family size, you just don't have the resources to support five kids to become entrepreneurs. That doesn't seem to be the problem. So, again, for finding an explanation for this phenomenon is, is something that I would perhaps like to, to do in the future. Right now, I have a working hypothesis that's self-efficacy, and hopefully one day I can measure that and really bring that to, to the data. The second thing was to not really find any effects of growing up with a brother versus growing up with a sister, because that that was something that the literature sort of suggested as a possible explanation for, for even for gender gaps. Yeah, well, you're, if you're if you're born in a family where the father, let's say, is an entrepreneur and you also have a brother, the father is just going to give all the resources and everything that's relevant for entrepreneurship to the son. You're going to forget about the daughter. And I don't really see that much of that in, in my own data. That's possibly because Sweden is um, well, they certainly think of themselves as progressive. So that's that's one way of, of looking at it. And. You know, I'm really encouraging people to take this to, to, to other contexts and study it. But for me, it was surprising because if you look at income, even in Sweden, it seems that women who grow up with a brother relative to a sister actually seem to suffer in terms of income. So I thought clearly there's going to be an implication for entrepreneurship doesn't really seem to be there. So this idea that when you have children of different gender, you want to what sociologists will sex type activities. It's like women have to do womanly things, men have to do manly things, and that could affect entrepreneurship. That doesn't seem to play out in my context. And I found that surprising. And of course, the the other thing was was the the result on on birth order, because I still, when I started the project, I thought, of course, yeah, risk-taking, it makes sense. My results don't rule out risk-taking, but it's not very obvious in in my context, right? You would imagine that if there was risk-taking, you'd see it reflected in the kind of growth-oriented entrepreneurship. I just find no evidence of that, which I thought was really surprising. And the last thing that I'll mention here was trying to put these results on sibling differences into a broader context. So thinking about my previous work on sibling similarities and thinking, well, what do families do more of? Do they make siblings more similar or more different? Or I mean, presumably they make them more similar. That kind of makes sense. But how big are these differences relative to the similarities? And the answer is they're pretty small. They're, you know, six, seven percent at best. So we have some measures of the importance of family. Once you adjust for these differences, those, that total importance of family grows, but not by too much. So I think in the grand scheme of things, my conclusion was that at least for entrepreneurship, families tend to play an equalizing role. They don't really treat their children differently. They don't say, oh, even if I have a family firm, it's like, oh, I'm going to take this kid to be the, the one that takes over and I'm not going to get that kid to take over right and of course there's there's many other people who work directly on family firm successions and who know much better about these things than me but it was important to try and you know link this back to the idea of inequality where i started and think well families actually create equality between them they they don't really create these sharp uh, sharp distinctions
0: what are the main implications of your work for entrepreneurs managers practitioners policymakers
1: i think that's that's a really tough question because i think if my paper is not being especially normative. I don't tell people this is how you should be doing because I'm not gonna go in and change people's families. Say, no, 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 I'm gonna make you a sixth born because that, that way you're gonna be more entrepreneurial. Like that's, you know, it's, it's practically impossible even if I wanted to. Um, so I really don't see the paper as normative, but I do think there are some implications for, for the way we think about the world and the way we communicate things. So one is, especially on the, on the research side, I really think it's important to, to study families more Uh, because they are such a big part of our lives and they clearly influence entrepreneurship and we need to understand it better, possibly in relationship to the different types of entrepreneurship. And I hope that the the paper provides a toolkit, both theoretical and empirical, for people to take similar questions and, and, of course, innovate as much as they want, but also apply these tools to different contexts. There's nothing to say you know, I found these things for Sweden and I have a pretty good idea that they generalize to northern Europe and to Germany and many other places, possibly the US, the UK. I'm not a hundred percent sure how well they translate to China, how will they translate to Australia? How well they translate to India or Spain for that matter. So so I am definitely encouraging people to to take the baton and and give us Evidence from around the world, which I think is going to is going to create many, many new insights. Um, And I I try to outline as many of these research avenues in in the paper as I possibly can. The other thing is to 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 go back to the to the discussion of sibling gender composition. People said, well, if we can somehow if if we can pin down uh, one source of the gender gap in entrepreneurship, and to be fair, the gender gap in entrepreneurship is really striking, especially when you're talking about growth oriented firms. But people thought, well, probably this comes from the family. You know, growing up with a brother—that's probably what explains a lot of it. I—I I really doubt that. I think the explanations must be structural, but somewhere else. I'm not denying that there could be something happening here, but it's not, you know, big enough to, to close that gender gap, if you will. So I think we we definitely need more insight on this. Um, but this is not really the the, the solution that I think is going to be like the silver bullet for gender gaps in entrepreneurship. The other thing is. I mentioned at the beginning, there's a lot of research on uh, a a lot of popular discussion about birth order and entrepreneurship, right? And actually, in my paper, that's kind of how I started it. I think, well, look, let's think about examples of famous Swedish entrepreneurs. Ingvar Kamprad, who started IKEA, right? Daniel Ek and Martin Lorentz from Spotify, or uh, Niklas Zenstrup from Skype, right? These are big companies, right? This podcast is going to be available on Spotify, started by two Swedish entrepreneurs. And I thought, what does their family look like? So I went on the internet and I tried to find out as much public information. Turns out they have sisters, they have brothers, sometimes they're younger, sometimes they're older. So there's this weird mix of the family composition. But then for popular articles to say, no, no, you have to be a later born to be an entrepreneur. Yeah, that didn't strike me as, you know, the the most constructive discussion we could have. So I think we need to be a little bit more careful with how we communicate these scientific findings for, for, you know, entrepreneurship and birth order in, in particular. There's I don't think there's any particular rule there, except that uh, once you take into account the type of entrepreneurship and you move away from these innovative types towards the more necessity-based, right, the kinds of people that have difficulties in the labor market, then birth order matters. And then the point is, well, if that's because these people have lower education, then we can help them with that, right? That's something that we can include. It's It's clear that these children might deserve or might require more attention when they're in school. And that's something we can provide. And this goes back to the idea that policymakers want to promote entrepreneurship because they think it fosters growth and innovation and upward mobility and this and that, business dynamism, whatever you can imagine. But if all we're doing is creating necessity entrepreneurs, I'm not sure we're achieving any of these outcomes. In fact, I have another paper where we look at upward mobility through entrepreneurship across generations. And we actually find, perhaps not surprisingly, unincorporated entrepreneurs, these necessity based they go down relative to their parents. The incorporated times, they're the ones that go up. Now, I'm not going to get into a whole discussion about why that is. It seems to be about who they are rather than about entrepreneurship, but that's for, that's for a different day. What's really important to me is for policymakers to really think about the type of entrepreneurship any policy is likely to generate. Um, so, so in thinking about that, maybe there are other tools that can prevent us from getting the bad entrepreneurs that might even waste resources. I'm not saying it's not helpful sometimes, but I'm saying in the grand scheme of things, what we want is the next Spotify. We don't want the next small shop around the corner. Um, so, so I would think it's important for for policymakers to keep this entrepreneurial heterogeneity in mind.
0: Thanks a lot, Theodore, for participating to our show and presenting your paper entitled "Family Structure and Entrepreneurship: Evidence from Swedish Siblings." All our podcasts are available on entrepreneurship.sherdy.com and on the main podcast platforms.